Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
Shame is gone. I stand up. 
and I will sing of your goodness forevermore. And worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. How many of you are familiar with the book of Obadiah? How many of you are wondering, is Pastor James messing with us? There's really no book of Obadiah, and he's just doing that. Anybody wondering that? More people wondering that. All right. It's really in there. If you find Amos, it's right there. Another, another big one. Hey, if you were in Sunday school today, we went through the book of Philemon, right? And now we're going to go through the book of Obadiah. You're getting two books in one day complete, right? Obadiah. Anybody in here love a you get when somebody gets what they deserve kind of story? Anybody here want to admit that you love it when people get what they deserve? 
I saw a couple hands, right? Not long ago, there was a story of a young man who broke into the, the house of this guy. It was a 73-year-old guy and his wife, and the guy threatened him. I don't know if you remember the story, but he threatened him with a knife. And the guy turned out to be um, a former Marine, right? Uh, a boxer and a hand-to-hand combat instructor. Needless to say, it did not turn out that well for that young man who broke in. He, he got what he deserved. If you saw the mugshot, it was, it was a pretty good one. There was another guy that I read who tried to siphon fuel out of an RV. And uh, he quickly realized that he was connected to the sewage tank. I don't know if you've seen the video of the guy with the brick going up going in to break into a car and the guy throws a brick at the window of the car and it bounces back and hits him in the head and just knocks him over, you know. I, I personally remember seeing uh, a, a car accident and the car who hit the other car, that car took off. The car that was in the wrong took off and just fled from the scene and what he didn't realize was his license plate was stuck on the car that he hit right? I think we all love those kind of stories, those kind of reap what you sow type stories. This is the book of Obadiah, speaking of God's judgment. This this is a story about a people group who get what they deserve. It's a sad story, though, because people get what they deserve, right? Right? We like it when others get what they deserve. We don't like it, though, when we get what we deserve, right? We do everything that we can to fight this. That's Obadiah as well. That's the second half of this book. There's two people. One gets what they deserve. One is restored. They don't get what they deserved. And today, we get to read it and be reminded that we don't have to be people that get what they deserve, right? We can be people that get grace and mercy. Amen? Obadiah 1, verse 1, starts off like this. This is the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah was a a prophet. We say minor prophet, not like the big prophets like Isaiah. This is a smaller one. And we don't know a lot about him. We know he's from Judah, though. And he warned Edom of God's coming judgment says, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Now, before we get into this, I'm going to take some time and probably spend half the sermon just going through backstory on this. In particular, who was this Edom? Who were these Edomites, right? The Edomites were the descendant of Esau. You remember him. Twin brother, Jacob, right? You find their stories in the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to take you through this. In, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, you have the call of Abram, the, the call of God to Abram, who would later be renamed to Abraham. Genesis 12:1. the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. You, you got to love this invitation, right? Just, just go. I'm going to show you where you're going along the way. Go leave everything. If you're new to the faith, let me just give you a heads up. That's how God works a lot of times. Just go. I'll show you where you're going along the way. 
right? God does not give us this complete roadmap that shows us every stop that we're going to take. He gives us sometimes just a direction, sometimes just the, the next stop. God does this on purpose, though, because the only way that we can do that is by faith, right? And that's what he wants. That's what he's trying to encourage. He wants us to have faith, i.e., he wants us to put our trust in him. Because he's the only one that we can really do that, who will never fail us, right? While it's not easy, God gives us promises along the way. We have many promises from the Word of God that we can apply to our life. Abram got a promise. He said, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Of course, that's referring to the coming of Christ, right? In Genesis chapter 17, God enters into a covenant. He makes a a promise, an unconditional promise to Abram. By doing this, God shows that he is fully committed to this endeavor, right? Fully committed to keep his promises despite his or our best efforts to derail that promise, right? So Abraham has a son he was promised named Isaac, the son through whom all the nations on the earth would be blessed, right? Isaac has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the younger. Esau means hairy, right? I I imagine he came out pretty hairy. We know he was hairy, and that just seemed like a fitting name. Jacob came out, though, grasping the heel of his brother, right? And so he got the name Jacob, which means usurper. A usurper is somebody that seizes power from somebody else. You see this play out, right, in his life because he ends up stealing a birthright, taking a birthright, and stealing a blessing. The, the firstborn son would, would get this, this special birthright. He, they would get a a double portion of the inheritance that was left behind. They did this because the firstborn would be responsible for the family, for the moms and the other kids, the young kids that were left behind. So they got a double portion. They also got a blessing to help out with this. But in Genesis 25, Jacob gets Esau's birthright. Esau comes in famished, remember? And Jacob's got this food, and Esau wants some food. He's like, I'm going to die. Please give me some food. And, and, and Jacob says, well, give me your birthright, and I'll, I'll give you some food. And so we see Esau trade it. Esau trades something permanent, something eternal for something temporary, right? Something that's just gratifying in the moment. Then later on, Jacob's mother helps Jacob steal the blessing from Isaac. She dresses Jacob up in Esau's clothes so that he smells like him. He he puts this fur on his arms so that he feels hairy like Esau would. And and here is Isaac who can't see very well. He, He smells this man that comes to him. He feels him and he thinks it's his son Esau. And so he gives Jacob Esau's blessing. We see the covenantal promise that came through Abraham, passed through Jacob, 
the younger son. Jacob, the deceiver, right? And you read this, and if you're like me, you're like, why? Why would God choose the blessing to go through Jacob and not Esau? Romans chapter 9, verse 10, gives us a little bit of information on this about these twins. The, the Jewish people were full of pride because of who they were related to, who they were through, right? They were from Abram. They were from Jacob. And so they took great pride in this over the other people that maybe you were fathered through Esau or maybe you were a Gentile. And so Paul calls this out. And he tells them this in verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had anything, had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works who, by him who calls, she was told, the, younger, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose before they were born Jacob over Esau before they did anything chose Jacob over Esau both hear this both were flawed both were not good people both were full of pride but here's the thing one would remain in their pride and one would come to face humility and be changed through that. And that's why God chose him. Romans 9, 14 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's, it's not about us being good enough to earn God's mercy, right? And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. We need to understand this. None of us are good, period, right? None of us are good. But some of us try to be good in order to make up for the bad. We think our human efforts will make us good people. That's pride speaking, though, right? Some of us know, though, that we're not good. Some of us know that the only hope we have is in the grace of Jesus Christ, is in the mercy of God, right? That's why God chose Jacob, because he came to realize that. There, there are some people that come in here and, and are changed through the brokenness. And there are some people who refuse to be changed through the brokenness, right? Their hearts just get harder. Not Jacob. Flash forward to Genesis 32. This is this Jacob, this younger brother. He's at a point where he's facing the consequences of the choices that he's made, right? He starts to reap what he sows. And instead of this turning him away from God, this turns him to God, to dependence on God. At this point, he's been deceived by his uncle. He's, he's taken off and left that situation, and he's returning home, and he hears the story that his brother Esau is coming to meet him, this brother who he deceived, this brother who he stole his birthright, stole his blessing, right? Oh, and by the way, his brother's bringing an army. And what's Jacob's response? Verse 32, we find this prayer and we start to see this intimate relationship developing between him and God, right? We know that in, in how he addresses God. He doesn't refer to God as some cosmic force. Remember, at this time, not much is known about God, 
There's not a whole lot out there, right? But he refers to God in this intimate way. In this prayer, we also see him approach with utter humility. He doesn't demand. He just humbly reaches out and says, I am unworthy of your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness, right? And he simply asks God to save him. And he reminds God of his promises. This leads him to the next point in life where he wrestles with God. You remember that story, right? He physically wrestles with God. He comes away from that with a limp. He comes away transformed. He comes away physically changed through it. And the story always fascinates me. Because God can't be beat, right? There's no way somebody could beat God. And yet, he invites Jacob to wrestle with him, right? This is a physical wrestling match. But many of us wrestle with him over our wills, right? We have our will. God has his will. And and we start wrestling with him over those things. Uh, Are you currently wrestling with God over anything? Because I'm guessing there's something in your life that needs change. Something in your life where maybe your will and his will don't line up. Would you wrestle with him over that? You won't beat him. But you need to wrestle with him. You can't just say, I'm not going to do that and step away. Right? Wrestle with him over that. Some people would say, oh, you can't do that. You can't question God. You can't do that with God, right? He can handle it. He's big enough. He welcomes it, right? He welcomes it. Uh, My family and I are reading through the Bible together, and we're reading through Ecclesiastes and the Psalms right now, and it's it's some interesting stuff. Ecclesiastes is all about, man, life is meaningless. Solomon just keeps saying this over and over. Life is meaningless. This is meaningless. That's meaningless, right? It's like chasing after the wind. And then you come to the Psalms, and over half of them are negative. You're like, when you're reading some of these things, should this even be in the Bible? Because of how negative they are? You've got people coming to God and saying, why have you forsaken me, God? Right? Why, why is it that I feel like you've turned your back on me? Why do my enemies prosper, God? And, and I'm struggling right here. The, the psalmists say these things, and half the time they're theologically wrong. But it gives us insight into their hearts, right? And what they're dealing with. And it's the thing that overwhelms me, the thing that strikes me, is that nothing's off limit to God. He allows them to approach him in that way. He's willing to hear them. He's willing to wrestle with them. He's going to win. He has his will. It's sovereign, right? But he invites us to wrestle with him in hopes that we will surrender our will to his as a part of that wrestling match. He invites us to wrestle just like Jacob physically did with God. And if we will do that, we'll come away with it from that changed as well. Just like Jacob was. Jacob the usurper, after that wrestling match, becomes Israel. God changes his name. One who strives with God. Right? Esau doesn't seem to wrestle with God. 
He also gets a new name, though. The hairy one gets renamed Edom. And it means red, as in the color referencing the stew that he chose over God's blessing. You see the difference in these two? Both flawed. Both deserving God's judgment. And one gets it, and one doesn't. One finds mercy. These two brothers are on a collision course, right? And they end up meeting and they begin to reconcile. But it doesn't fully take hold. And this rivalry that started when they were younger continues on. And that's what we see. The, the conflict with the brothers spills out to their descendants. The next time we hear of, of the Israelites interacting with the Edomites, right, is in Numbers chapter 21. You find the Edomites refusing, refusing to allow the Israelites to pass through their land after they were freed from Egypt. And I just think, man, that's sad, right? Here's these two people that are family. They're of the same blood. And yet the sibling rivalry continues to this point And this is where we come to the book of Obadiah, right? And this is where God confronts the sin of the Edomites and declares judgment. This is also the place where God restores Israel. One gets what they deserve. One gets mercy. Looking at judgment in verse 3, it says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you. He's talking to Edom. You who live in the clefts of the rock, And make your home on the heights, you who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomites, like their father, were prideful, right? They took pride in where they lived. They they lived above everybody else. They lived very high up. They they made their home by cutting these, these places in the side of a rock high up to live. It was impregnable. It was a place of security for them, a place where they could look down literally on other people and feel better about themselves. It was a place where they felt like they were eagles, but God declares, from there, I'm going to bring you down, right? Besides being prideful in where they lived, they were also prideful about the alliances that they had. They, they took pride in that. They had security in who were their friends. But in verse 7, it says, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you but you will not detect it. Every area that was a source of pride for them, God was going to dismantle it. God was going to silence it. And and I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, where are the areas that I'm prideful? Where are the areas that I refuse to bow my knee to the will of God, right? What pride am I bringing to the Lord Where am I putting my trust in myself or my things or my bank account or my abilities, right, instead of him? Where will I not humble myself? Where am I unwilling to do what God is calling me to do? Somebody said pride is like standing before God and flexing. 
It's a good picture of pride. It's idiotic, right, to stand before God and flex. And it will only result in us being brought low. So what did the Edomites do specifically? What's really behind this judgment? Well, you have to know that the Babylonians came and they attacked Israel and Judah in particular, which was the the neighbor of the Edomites. Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, that's the day that the Babylonians attacked, right? You stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in their day of disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. What was Edom's sin? They stood by and did nothing when their brothers, right, were attacked. We have sins of commission. Those are the sins where we choose to do something that we know we shouldn't do, right, that violates a a law of God. We choose to lie. We choose to steal. We choose to harm. But there are also sins of omission where God tells us to do something where we can do what is right, and instead we choose to do nothing. That's what they did. On top of not helping out their brothers, they also gloated over them. They gloated that this disaster fell on them. They, they felt secure from their vantage points, from being up on the side of that mountain, right, that hill in the clefts of the rocks. They felt secure there, and they rejoiced in their brother's destruction. Not only that, but it says they joined in the looting. And not only that, But they also went to the crossroads and they waited for their brothers to flee and they captured them and handed them over to the Babylonians. That's harsh, right? That's the same spirit of us when we see people we don't like getting what they deserve and we take joy in that. Right? We all love a good person gets what they deserve kind of story. Sometimes we love that a little too much. And it changes how we see people, right? This is what invites God's judgment. It all stems from two brothers, right? Two paths. And we need to see this today. Again, both were imperfect. Both were messed up. Both did bad things, right? But one invites God's wrath and the other invites his mercy. Which are you inviting today this this question is answered by simply are you filled with pride or are you filled with humility are you filled with pride and you like to gloat when your enemies are thrown down or are you filled with humility and you you cling to god's promises james 4 6 quotes proverbs three thirty four, and it says god opposes the proud right but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. What's the appropriate response when we read the book of Obadiah? 
The appropriate response is simply humility. That's what we have to be about. We're all flawed in some way. We're all deserving of God's judgment. We're all flexing before God. And we revel in others' suffering, right? Other people getting what they deserve. And we shouldn't. If pride is flexing before God, humility is the opposite. Humility is a simple disposition. Andrew Murray wrote in a book on humility. He said, humility is the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust instead of relying on self, which we know that's pride, right? It's about trusting God. My prayer is that as a church, God leads us towards humility especially in humility and how we see other people, right? Maybe even how we see our family members, our literal brothers and sisters, right? How do we see them? Do we hope that they get what they deserve because of that sibling rivalry? Do we hope that the person who's just messed up gets what they deserve? Or do we invite them to receive God's grace? Do we invite them to repent, right, and turn from their ways? That boss who's a jerk, right, do we hope that he gets what he deserves? That person who's on the other political aisle, right, voting for stupid things that are destroying things, do we hope they get what they deserve? That, that person who's a man who's dressed up like a woman and is competing against women, do we hope that they get what they deserve? Or do we hope that they get their lives wrecked by God, turned upside down by God? Do we hope that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and are totally transformed? What do we hope? One is pride. One is humility. One remembers that once we were enemies of God, once we needed to be changed, once we needed to experience his mercy, right? We are a holiness people. That's who the Nazarenes are. We are Christian people. We are a missionary people. We are a holiness people. And if I could borrow somebody else, Charles Spurgeon said, humility is the secret of holiness and the source of grace. That's an awesome quote. Humility is the secret of holiness. It's not about us being perfect, right? It's about us being in Christ in humility, right? And it is a source of grace. I love that we have a picture of humility from four different vantage points, a great picture from four different gospels of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who embodied humility, right? We have that available to us in the word of God that we can see what it looked like, what it looked like to be hit, to be slapped, to be nailed to a cross, and still respond with humility. I, I wish I could just tell you, okay, that's what we're about, right? Humility is where it's at, so just throw off your cloak of pride and put on your cloak of humility. I wish I could say that. It was that easy, but if it was, if it was something that we could do with our own strength, then it would become a source of pride because we'd say, look what we did. Humility is not that easy. Humility comes from wrestling with God. Right? 
Humility comes from him changing us. I want to challenge you. Instead of flexing before God, would you come and just kneel down at his feet, right? Would you, would you take that position, instead of the flexing position, would you take to the position where you literally and physically kneel down before him, if you can? Some of you guys got some bad knees, right? But you can do that in your heart. Would you take the position where you just put your face on the ground before him, when you come before him? That, that physical act, there's nothing special about that, but I know that when I do that, my prayers sound differently. I'm in a different state of mind when I'm thinking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when I'm bowing down. Will you do that? Can I challenge you with that? To get alone with him? To come in on a Friday night, Saturday morning here at the church, just lay down on the ground and cry out to him, right? Lord, we can be honest, right? Lord, I want to see that person fail. That's my heart. That's what I feel towards them. I want to see them get what they deserve. I want to see you strike them down, right? But I know that's not your way. So Lord, would you change my heart? Would you remove those feelings? Will you wrestle with him? He's big enough that you can be honest with him. Bring it to him. Bring the things that you're struggling. Bring your true things your true thoughts to him. Because when you bring that into the light, that's when he changes things. That's when he starts working on us. And maybe he'll remind you of the grace that he's shown you. And maybe that will encourage you to show some grace yourself. My biggest sin, the worst thing I've done in my life, has been the biggest thing that's made me humble, right? It's the biggest thing that changes how I see other people and their sin because I remember my sin. I remember that one thing. I remember more than one thing. I remember how God restored me, how God forgave me, right? How God took the brokenness and remade it. Humbled me. And that's a great thing. And I want that for other people, right? I want that for everyone else that I comes into my life. Most of the times, not 100% on that. Sometimes there's the idiotic drivers that just tick me off, right? I've, I struggle with that. You can pray for me about that. But it drives me to trust Him, it drives me to extend grace to other people. My friends, let's be amazed by His grace right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You've experienced that. Share it with somebody, right? The book of Obadiah was a a prophecy written to two groups. One gets what they deserve. One is restored. Let me let, let you hear this. One is restored not because of anything they do. That didn't earn it. I never earned grace. It was given to me, and I accepted it. Not because I'm a good person, right? But because God is a good person. After God delivers judgment to Edom, 
He says this in verse 15, or he's talking about it. He says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. We're switching to all nations, right? As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. There's a good warning, right, for how we treat other people. After God delivers this message, then he turns and talks about Israel's future deliverance in verse 17. And it says this, But on a mountain Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will come and occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of exiles of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sephaphard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God sends deliverers. We see this in the Old Testament, some of who we know by name, right? People like Ezra and Nehemiah. But the ultimate, this, this final verse in this chapter is hinting at the messianic prophecy about the one coming because Jesus will ultimately establish the kingdom of God on this earth. Obadiah ends by magnifying the faithfulness of God. He keeps his promise. He keeps his covenant. Even in the midst of unfaithfulness of his people, My friends, if we will humble ourselves and put our trust in him and quit flexing in front of him, if we'll wrestle with him, we can experience his mercy and grace. Be reminded, right? God does not just use the cleaned up stories of our lives for his glory. He is able somehow to use the brokenness as well right? This is the way of the Lord. Amen? The Edomites prior to this were in their positions of power with their allies. They're sitting high in their pride, and in one day, in 164 BC, they were attacked and almost completely wiped out. I, I only know of one other Edomite mentioned in the New Testament, and that man too was destroyed because of his pride. Do you remember him? His name was King Herod, the Edomite. That Edomite learned in his time about another king that was coming. You remember he told, he told the wise men, let me know where he's at so I can come and worship him because he wanted to kill him, right? King Jesus from the line of Judah, brother from a family line to King Herod. This King Herod did not want to bow down, though, did not want to share his power. This King Herod was full of pride, and he faced destruction, right? This King Herod even killed some of his own sons just so that he wouldn't lose the throne. And when this King Herod came into contact, came into Jesus' company. 
he refused to bow down. And he was destroyed. Will you bow down to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords? Amen? Will you stand with me? One king filled with pride. The other king had no pride, right? He was the embodiment of humility. And I just want to read this final passage before we have communion. Philippians 2, verse 6. Listen to these words that describe our king. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. To what point? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen? Two kings, two brothers, two people groups, one flexed, one flexed in front of God, one bowed down. One chose pride. One was humbled. Which will be your path? Will you bow down to what he calls you to? Will you bow down to that thing that he's calling you to lay down? Or will you say, no, I refuse? Maybe it's anger towards a spouse. We just went through our spouse series, right? Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe he's calling you to lay it down. Will you? Or will you stand there in pride and say no? Will you wrestle with him? Or will you flex in front of him? How will you see the people around you? Do you hope they get what they deserve? Or do you hope they find Jesus? Will you be agents of that? Will you participate in the ministry of reconciliation? Will you see yourself as somebody who can extend the grace that's been given to you to somebody else that needs it? Two paths. Which one will you choose? Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your example, one filled with mercy, one filled with grace, and I'm reminded that if it was not for that, Lord, I would have no hope. There is nothing good about me, Lord, but only being in you. Father, I pray that if there's there's somebody in here who doesn't know you today, maybe is hearing about your mercy and grace for the very first time, that they would surrender their lives to it, that they would acknowledge and say, I want this Jesus, this one who died for me to be my Lord and Savior. Come save me, Lord. Come lead me, Lord, and I will follow you the rest of my life. Lord, let that be. Father, we love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray, amen, amen.